BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. But there's a structurally racist element to this because it's essentially a huge wealth transfer from this predominantly African-American labor group to this predominantly white management group. And like going back to our previous, our previous thing we just talked about, you know, the labor that happens to be mostly African-Americans not getting their fair share and their rights are not being protected by the government. So that's got some pretty bad historical echoes if you think of it that way. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we speak to journalist Patrick Ruby about the latest scandals involving the FBI's investigation into college basketball. Now, for those of you who aren't aware of the backstory on this, a couple weeks back, two Yahoo writers, Pat Forty and Pete Tamil, published the contents of spreadsheets that the FBI took from the office of former NBA agent Andy Miller. We now know that the FBI has wiretaps and witnesses suggest that dozens of high-profile basketball programs and players could be charged by the NCAA or perhaps even the federal government. We're talking Duke, Michigan State, Kentucky. We're talking big time here. And I can't think of anybody better to help us wrap our heads around it than Patrick Ruby. After Patrick, we'll have our Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down awards and so much more. And we got a special shout out to Edge of Sports patrons coming up towards the end of the show. But first, Ruby Tuesday himself, Patrick Ruby. So Patrick, for listeners who aren't immersed in this issue the way we are, I want to make sure we take people along on this journey. On the most basic level, what is wrong with how NCAA athletes are treated in revenue-producing sports? And what do you say to people who say, why aren't scholarships enough? So, so there's two things that I think on the basic level that are wrong, uh, and they're related. The most basic thing that most people understand, if they pay any attention at all to the economy of major college sports, is it's a billion-dollar business. The athletes are the on-field labor force in this billion-dollar entertainment business, and they get an extremely small cut of the money pie. They do not get a fair cut. That's the most basic thing that almost anybody can see. The related thing that's truly wrong, and I think is actually more basic, is the reason why they don't get a fair cut. And the reason why is because all the schools get together through what we call the NCAA. You can call it a union of schools if you like. They have something called amateurism, and they tell all those athletes, 
what you can earn from sports, what you can earn from your labor, what you can learn from your entertainment product is limited to what we say. And what we say is a scholarship plus whatever else we want to throw in. So in other words, they don't enjoy the rights the rest of us have to negotiate for the best deal possible, whether it's as a union or individually. They are not allowed to pit the schools that otherwise compete for their talents against each other to get the best deal, the way all the rest of us are in our own lines of work and our own lines of productivity. And again, the reason they're not able to do that is because of amateurism. And the only reason the schools are able to do that and impose amateurism is because our government will not apply antitrust law to college sports. The rest of us are protected by laws that are set up to encourage competition and let all of us sort of realize our market value. Athletes are treated like second-class citizens when they're in college and not allowed to do that. The government should protect them. It doesn't. So those are sort of the two most related basic reasons why uh, this isn't a fair or just system. Now, you've also written that there is a racial dynamic here that we'd have to be blind Mm -hmm. to ignore. I mean, you wrote a heavily, heavily researched piece that was more than just you know, someone putting out a tweet like, hey, NCAA is a plantation, seems kind of racist. Uh, but right. it, 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 you, you've, you wrote about how the racial dynamic is central for understanding how the NCAA is able to get away with this. Now, can, can you speak right. a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, no, no, for sure. So in terms of racial dynamics, there are really like two pieces, again, that fit together here. The first one is that if you look at who generates the money and where it goes, you have a predominantly African-American on-field workforce, essentially, whether you want to call it a sports business, entertainment business, a college marketing business, all of the above, a television production programming business. That's what big-time college sports is. The on-field performers are not exclusively, but they're majority African-American. Uh, they're the ones who are most responsible. They're not solely responsible, as is the case in all lines of work, but they're most responsible for the billions of dollars of revenues being generated. And the lion's share of that money does not go back to them. It goes to coaches, administrators, non-revenue sport athletes. Uh, It goes back to fans in a way in terms of potentially lower ticket prices. And if you look at all the people who are collecting the lion's share, they're not exclusively, but they're predominantly white. So what you essentially have, and again, I'm not saying that this system was set up to be this way, because when amateurism was set in college sports, college sports were segregated. Colleges were segregated. So it actually wasn't mm-hmm. created out of racism. And I don't think the people in the system are a bunch of like evil, mustache-twirling racists. You know, I've criticized Mark Everett and his cronies quite a bit. I don't think they sit around at night, you know, like go, logging on to Daily Stormer, right? Like, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't think that's what's going on. But there's a structurally racist element to this because it's essentially a huge wealth transfer from this predominantly African-American labor group to this predominantly white management group. And like going back to our previous, our previous thing we just talked about, you know, the labor that happens to be mostly African-Americans not getting their fair share and their rights are not being protected by the government. So that's got some pretty bad historical echoes if you think of it that way. And, and oftentimes, racial ideology follows material reality, not vice versa. 
So it's right. set up. The NCAA is set up as this kind of white uh, for what basically for white athletes, uh, a lot of Ivy League athletes, uh, children of privilege to play college sports. And but as it became this de facto minor league for the NFL and the NBA, new ideologies develop out of that. So the reasoning that you hear given, even though they're not twirling mustaches and watching Daily Stormer, the reasons that you often hear given for why you can't pay these athletes, which are rooted in you know in youth and irresponsibility and maturity, paternalism, mm-hmm. very loaded terms with a lot of paternalism yeah. and certainly terms you never hear applied to youth Olympians or golfers or tennis players. Not at all. We should be real about it. There is a huge echo. Again, uh, I'm, not, I'm not accusing any one person of being racist, but there's an echo here, at least culturally, historically, of the white man's burden. You'd have mm-hmm. to be totally ignorant of history to not see that, to see the parallels. Um, and again, this, these same rules also affect white athletes. So that's true. Like there are, there are white athletes in the non-revenue sports who are also being denied their full sort of economic place at the table. Someone like Misty Franklin, a swimmer of Cal, who's a gold medalist mm-hmm. who can make a lot of money for endorsement, has to give that up to swim in college. Why should she, why can't she do both? There's no real reason. So I don't, like I said, I don't want to say that it's all racial and everything's race because that, that would be simplistic and wrong, but we have to be honest about that's a part of it. And we should look at that part and understand it. And the third thing that this jumps to is sort of, public support or lack of support for the status quo, right? Mm-hmm. And when you look which, which at- Which varies dramatically people, on the basis of race, when you look at percentages. It does, of- which, which is very interesting. You, yeah, you look at surveys, and in general, it's moving more and more in favor of allowing athletes to be compensated. It's been moving a lot more that way in the last 10 years um, than it ever was before. But you, you're right. When you look at sort of how that breaks down, still at this point, African-Americans and minorities are predominantly in favor of that, you know, over 50%. I think it's 50% or higher at this point now. I have to go back and double check the most recent polls. Uh, And a majority of whites are still opposed to to athletes, college athletes being allowed to be compensated freely. Um, Mm. And if you dig into that further, some people that do this kind of research on, uh, you know, politics and public opinion polls in terms of policy, they decide to look at, people's attitudes towards college sports, towards athletes being paid. And they discovered that there was also a strong correlation between if you were opposed to this and how strongly you were opposed to the idea of athletes being paid, you tended to score higher on measures of what's called racial resentment. And this is a phenomenon that's been studied a lot, again, in public policy and politics. So it's pretty well understood by social scientists. There's controversy over it. There's debate, as there is in all social sciences, but it's not some crazy wild idea that there's no data and no history of scholarship behind. And the Mm -hmm. idea of racial resentment, uh, it's very important, I think, for your listeners to understand. Racial resentment, again, it isn't like the mustache-twirling racism that we're used to, like in sort of movies. It's not like, you know, I'm white and I think black people are filthy animals, right? It's not that out there. It's more like, hey, I'm white and, you know, everybody knows that, uh, you know, black people are lazy, right? It's that, it's still racist, but it's a little bit different. And it's the kind of thing that informs public policy decisions. You know, people will say, you know, I'm not racist. I just don't support welfare because it goes to lazy people, you know? And when they think of the awesome, what do you think of a lazy person? It's a black person. 
Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that's good. I'm not saying that's justifiable. And I'm not saying we should support that or be even sympathetic to that. But it is a little bit different. It's why people can say that and have that kind of belief and also say that I'm not racist, right? I got nothing mm-hmm. against black people. They just happen to be lazy, right? It's like terrible attitude. But that's the, so it's a little more subtle. The thing they're trying to pick up on when they study this is more subtle. And they do see a correlation between people who don't want to let athletes be paid and have higher levels of racial resentment. And it's highly systemic, and it's no coincidence that the high support for this is in the southeast of the United States, partly in the power conferences, in the southeastern conference. I mean, there's a lot at work here that speaks to racial attitudes in this country. And it's one of those things, too. I'll just say that you mentioned before, it reminds me also of, like, it's true that the majority of people on food stamps in this country are white, and yet they are not made the face of food stamps partly to build resentment against all people like who have to who need public assistance. And so similarly, while so many people um, are so many athletes are damaged by the current NCAA system, they make the face of the NCAA system often people who are the easiest to demonize. Oh, I agree with you. And, and in some ways, that's also the de facto face of it because it's the two most popular sports. Exactly. Um, but you know, we, should, we, should, we should note that. You make a really good point here, which is like all athletes are hurt by this. Everyone who's being denied their basic economic rights and protections is being hurt here. If you look at sort of even the recent history of NCAA quote-unquote scandals and impermissible benefits, uh, it is often but not always the big, powerful football and basketball programs you see like division three women's basketball where like play or tennis like players are getting housing they're getting meals they're not supposed to get like lots of athletes have value at some level Mm -hmm. that they're not able to capitalize just because it's not necessarily like they're creating a lot of value through a huge tv contract they still might have some value locally still have value their school any school that's trying to win and competing against another school and therefore needs to get better athletes than the other school, those athletes have value. Those schools have to bid. That's the whole trick of the NCAA is to take out competitive bidding. It's literally something that every conservative in America should like, be in, like, unable to tolerate. That's what, and then we talk about the Southeast Conference. One of the interesting things is you see sort of the strongest love of something like college football in a place that's most politically conservative and yet the politically conservative beliefs about the free market aren't trained on college football. And maybe that does tie into the race stuff. Although we should also admit about the American South, a very evangelical place, right? At least on the surface. But plenty of people down there are breaking all sorts of evangelical rules um, you know, on the down low all the time. And the SEC, at least for football, is notorious for being probably having the most uh, under the table payments going to athletes. So there's a lot of contradictions that are interesting here, too. Oh, sure. No, absolutely. And, and the setup is not dissimilar to this is why when people people get upset when you make when people make slavery comparisons or say plantation. But one of the things that like in, in Bill Roden's book, 40 million dollar slaves, like he speaks about how there was an economy on plantations for great athletes. It's not like they weren't paid. It's not like all slaves weren't paid, particularly the ones who were able to be entertained. Now, and like with college sports, they were paid sometimes with really 
immoral things, like whether it was handing them women, whether it was making sure their families had extra food. It wasn't an honest and open, fair exchange of labor value precisely because that's not how the systems operated. They operated outside a legal free market. Right. That's what happens Ugh. when you have a, when you have a, and not to use this, I, I don't mean this in, in any kind of ritually, when you have a black market, when you have an underground economy, sure. when you prohibit something and you, you pretend that something doesn't have value, but it still does. And everything's still revolving around it having value, you know? Yeah. What do lawyers call that? Like the moral hazard? What do they call that? Like a moral hazard law? Isn't that the phrase? Like a law is sure a moral hazard? I, I'm not sure if that's the right use of moral hazard. But, um, but I mean, (laughs) you are going to, sorry, but you are, no, when it's just, it's a way to think about the FBI scandals and a way to think about what we see in college sports is just think about alcohol prohibition in America. Right. What happened with alcohol prohibition? All it did was take, and what happens with drug prohibition now? You're not getting rid of the the demand. That's what I I understand the moral hazard statute to be in a court is like this idea that says, you are creating a moral hazard for people by outlawing something that by all rights should be legal because you're sort of compelling them to break the law. Yeah, that's a good, you know what? That's a good point. That's, that is exactly what's going on here. All you're doing is you're always like, okay, with alcohol, right? You're always going to have a drinking problem in America or, and, or just people drinking, right? There's a continuum of some, many people drink and they don't mm-hmm. have problems. Some people do, but you're always going to have people drinking. They want to drink just like they want drugs, Right. When you criminalize it and you push that economy underground, all you do is create a crime problem on top of that. And what do you invite? You invite all sorts of shady middlemen. You invite uh, violence and turf wars in the case of prohibition or the drug economy. Uh, in the case of college sports, we don't have you know, rival booster clubs you know, shooting each other up to control the streets. But you do have them like, you know, competing for athletes still. You have bad men. Like I said, you have these shady middlemen. You have agents. And unscrupulous agents inserting themselves as we're seeing the FBI case and making loans left and right, trying to secure the services of athletes. You know, you basically, I think when they talk about, um, you hear feel like Mark Emmerich talk about, we can't have this kind of corruption in college sports. And it's like, your rules create the corruption. Mm-hmm. Like, nobody, nobody says it's corrupt for Mark Emmerich to get a signing bonus or a coach to get a mm-hmm. signing bonus or for schools to hire search committees to find coaches and athletic directors or for finder's fees to be paid to those search committees. If you look at what these agents were doing with the athletes, they're very arguably doing the exact same thing. Those expenses on the ledger that we saw, the alleged ledger of loans and payouts to athletes and other people around them that we saw in the Yahoo Sports report, um, you know, you can look at that and say, oh my God, look at all that corruption. Or you can say, oh, look at that. That's someone keeping good books about their business development. And the only reason that anyone calls it corruption is because the NCAA makes rules against it. We should remember this. NCAA rules are not the law of America. Right. Nobody voted I love it when they speak about NCAA bylaws as if they were somehow passed legislatively. Bylaws. They're not bylaws. That's like like me having a rule, you know, for my kids, you have to go to bed at 10 o'clock. That's the bylaw. It's like, that's just my rule for my kids. That's not a law of the land. So I do think that's something to keep in mind, too. Well, let me ask you this, though, because before, and I can't believe it's taking us this long to get to the FBI stuff, but I do think it's so important to not assume that everybody has been doing the work that you've been doing and the work I've been doing, reading the work that you have done, 
in the lead up to this. The question that I get, and frankly, I get it from people who should know better, but I want to give you the chance to answer mm-hmm. it, is Title IX. If you paid mm-hmm. college athletes in the revenue-producing sports, if they were allowed to have the free market be a part of their lives, it would destroy Title IX, and it would therefore, by definition, destroy women's sports. So a position, this is the way the argument goes, of paying college athletes somehow hurts women. How do you respond to that? First of all, I think it's a great question. I think some people come from a place of extreme bad faith when they ask that because they don't care about women's sports or Title IX in the first place. But some people come from a place of very good faith. People, yeah, no, but some people are, especially women's sports advocates who have fought long and hard yeah. um, against not just economic problems, but like deep, culturally rooted sexism. Like mm-hmm. my hat off, my hat is off to those people. They fought hard. They've made progress. It's not where anyone wants it to be. Like Title IX is a good thing. Women's sports are a good thing. Subsidizing that, um, given the history of, women being shut out of that and men's sports having, you know, a hundred year almost head start of being the only thing that was subsidized in America. Uh, there are many good arguments for doing that. And I, and I, I support them and I think it's good. So I want to say that as a caveat, and it's also a good question in terms of the answer. So there's a couple of aspects to it. First of all, in a free market, any third party compensation for an athlete. So a cash envelope from a booster, uh, the, being able to go and sign your autograph for money, uh, being able to be in an ad with a local car dealer, getting a free meal from somebody, you know, everything third party, Title IX has nothing to do with that. Title IX is not a law that requires all compensation in America for everyone to be equal on the basis of gender. Title IX applies to U.S. education. It says you have to have equal opportunities in schools for both genders. So that's the first thing. It's like we're not even... All the Olympic-style compensation that college athletes missed out on, the third-party stuff, tell them anything to do with that. So first of all, like, athletes could be getting more just right there. Secondly, if we are talking about the potential for direct payments from a school, right, and we're talking about payments that are in excess of whatever you're getting for your scholarship. So we're talking about signing bonus, we're talking about salary, we're talking about a trust fund, whatever it is a particular school sets that up and says, here's more money we're going to give you beyond what we're giving you to go to school. Right. Right. So it's beyond what the limit is right now. Title IX could affect that in a bunch, a bunch of different ways. You know, first of all, Title IX, and it depends on how it's interpreted once this happens. It could be interpreted uh, on one hand of saying, you know what, Title IX only means you have equal education and participation opportunities in sports. So as long as your balance is like it is now where, you know, your number of scholarships is relatively equal, uh, between men and women, depending on the population of men and women on your campus, and people that want to play sports in both genders are served by the amount of opportunities you're providing. So long as you provide those opportunities, Town 9 doesn't apply to any extra salary money on the top. It doesn't apply to your campus job money you're getting on top. Someone could decide that, you know, in the government. They could look at it. There could be lawsuits. They could decide that. On far on the other end of it, they could go the other way. They could say it's a dollar-for-dollar dollar match. So if you want to pay Texas's quarterback $100,000 signing bonus, you got to take $100,000 and give that to female athletes on top of the scholarships and whatever you're giving them. Now, that would be the quote unquote, and I use this loosely, worst case scenario for the people that say, oh, you can't change anything. What about Title IX? Now think about what that would actually mean in practice, though. So I think it's a best case scenario in some ways. 
because it would essentially be a dollar for dollar tax on any direct school compensation that benefits women athletes. So Texas, if they've got 100 grand to spend on their quarterback, he ends up getting 50 grand and female athletes end up getting 50 grand. And you know who wins that? Athletes, because each one of them is getting 50 grand they're not getting now. So it's not going to bankrupt schools. They would just spend what they could and they'd have to, they'd have to treat that Title IX as a kind of internal tax. But they'd still have to pay elite athletes to compete for them, something, and then women athletes would get some of that too. And to me, that's a win-win for athletes. So I don't see it as much of a problem as other people do. My question is one of the things about the market is one of the reasons why the market can bear huge salaries for college coaches, beyond which mm-hmm. pro coaches make in many cases, or, right. or why they can afford $20 million for Jim Delaney uh, to be the commissioner of the Big Ten as some signing bonus or, or, or just an end-of-the-year bonus of 20 mil. It's like they can aff- – it's not – that's a distortion of the free market because they're only making that much because players are making nothing. So it's like it's like the Scrooge McDuck or Mr. Burns money fight type <laughs> of situation. And so it really uh, does mean, if we're also being honest, it's not taking away. This is why I think the debate gets so screwed up. It's not taking away from Title IX to pay these athletes. It's actually there's an internal economy in these revenue producing sports. That's why the water polo coach doesn't make as much as Nick Saban. And if that specific internal economy operated on a base level of justice where players were able to get a piece of the TV deals and they would also be getting a piece of what the coaches make. I mean, is that oh, wrong? Oh, 100%. No, 100%. This is something people don't understand about college sports too, is that the costs in college sport are not fixed. They are related to the incoming revenue. Exactly. So it's like the only people outside the market are the players. I'm sorry, go on. No, no. This is something that has been studied extensively. You can look up papers on it. It's not that hard of a concept to even follow. It's, it's called the revenue theory of cost. It's been applied to many nonprofits, not just college sports departments, but people have also studied it in college sports. And it's a simple concept. And anyone who's ever worked in a big company knows how this concept works. It essentially says every year, if you don't have an incentive to turn a profit, so think about you work in a department in your company, right? You get a budget every year. What's your incentive? Spend every damn dollar, right? Because mm-hmm. you don't want to get less next year. College athletic departments are exactly the same. And if you look at the rise in revenue over the last 20 years, especially on TV money, it is tracked dollar for dollar with a rise in spending. And so like you said, when it's exactly the case. When the money's going up and you have to spend it and you've limited what the labor can get, so you know, you're not bidding on players. You're, you, you've kept their costs really low. The money has to go somewhere. So where is it going to go? It's going to go to the other places you actually have competitive bidding, which is coaches, administrators, construction of facilities, exactly. all these kinds of things. And that, that in many ways, by the way, we should note, are actually things that are used to indirectly recruit the players because you can't just directly offer them more money the way everyone else does in society when you want to hire someone over someone else that's competing for the same person. And that punches a hole in one of the biggest arguments against um, fake amateurism. Because the argument is always, well, if you paid players, well, that gives, say, Alabama an unfair advantage over Texas Tech. And it's just like, hello, you don't think Alabama already has an unfair advantage over... You think think kids are choosing Alabama versus... 
it, it's on the basis of the, the school colors and the mascot. I mean, are you kidding me? We need, we need to talk about that for a second. Like, this is something else that's a big pet peeve of mine. It just sort of shows that people, like, don't want to understand what's actually mm-hmm. going on. Because you can see yeah, it very clearly. Look, look, when you talk about recruiting, right, if you just go and look at the recruiting rankings for high school, the last 10 years, again, people have studied this. They've actually done papers on this. You go look at recruiting rankings, the, you know, the four- and five-star recruits. You look at the schools they go to. They go to all top schools. They go there year after year. There's no parity right now. You look at who actually wins and loses, there's really no parity. You do have that one-game single-elimination tournament in basketball that has upsets, but that's not the same thing as parity. There is no parity in college sports. The big, rich programs get the best players and win the most consistently. Now, how does that apply to a world where all of a sudden there isn't amateurism and people fret that, oh, well, maybe there'll be even bigger lack of parity, right? Then people will will pivot to that argument, right? Here's the thing. If schools were free to bid on players, this is what would happen. Alabama and USC would compete for the same five-star recruits they're paying for now. They both have a lot of money. They'd be bidding against each other. They'd be spending their money there. Boise State and Akron, who are competing for like the three-star recruits right now, would still be competing for the same level of player, and whatever extra money they had to spend, they'd be spending it. Those players would be getting less. It wouldn't be mm-hmm. any different than the labor market we see everywhere else in America right now. And the same schools would be competing each other at the same level. And like you said, it would just be more of the overall money would go to the athletes, and there would be less for the coaches, the administrators, the construction, the gold plating, the boondoggling, the lazy rivers being built, you know, mm-hmm. at the athletic facilities. That would be That's, the I'm difference. glad you're talking about that because the athletic facilities that I, I don't even want to name the schools because I've been inviting there as guests or whatnot, but I'm telling my listeners right now that top 1% NCAA schools have nicer athletic facilities than professional teams, straight up. Yeah, because they have extra money to spend. They don't have owners. They have the the extra money to spend. Right, because they keep their labor costs fixed. It's this, it's, and and low, by the way, in pro sports, where you have the right to negotiate and you have actual unions. In America, you have unions bargaining with owners and (laughs) leagues. You end up with about a 50 50 split. As of this podcast, we do, yes. Yeah, you end up with a 50 50 split generally. And when you see a strike or a lockout, that usually means someone pushed it to like 45, 55, and the other side's angry, right? That's usually, that's usually what they're fighting over. It's a few percentage points, right, in pro sports. But generally, it's about 50-50. Uh, in NCAA sports, the major revenue sports, it's like 90-10 if you look at it. That's what fixing your labor costs can do for you. And that's where all the yeah. money comes to build all this stuff. And to pay all and, these and, coaches, the coaches make a much bigger percentage of the pie in college sports than they do in pro sports. It's not necessarily because also, they're that much more valuable. It's because there's more money to spend. That's also where I think the racism comes from, because now you're trying to justify uh, this economic system, which is utterly unjust. Um, on the flip side, a lot of people talk about how the NBA is this woke league, and you even hear Adam Silver praising players for speaking out. Well, one of the reasons for that is that the players economically are the league. And they have right. shown that this is something that the millennial fan likes when they know their player is a three-dimensional human being. 
So the ideology flows from that. Like, yeah, we like our players speaking out. And in college, the ideology flows from that too. And it's, we want these players to shut up and dribble. Yeah. But I think that's true. I I mean, guess, that, you know what's crazy, that, Patrick? Yeah. Is we've been talking, and I haven't asked you one question about this latest thing the feds. I got to ask you this stuff. And it can be, I know you've been so generous with your time, but I, I'll, I just got to ask you this. So, first of all, how big it, I mean, it's so tough for me in this media environment to know the difference between noise and substance. So, yes. how big is it? How big a deal? is this latest scandal? Is this just the latest in an endless series of scandals that are so endemic to the NCAA because of the gutter economy that we've already discussed? Or does this one actually have legs and stick? I think this one has, has, yeah, has the potential to have legs and stickiness, uh, depending on how extensive the investigation is, depending how many sort of big names end up revealed and caught up in it. You know, depending on how deep it really goes into this underground economy that we all know exists, that shows people the details. Like, and if it does that over time, and no pun intended, dribbles out those details over time, so you have an ongoing news cycle of revelations. You know, we know how the news works, right? Like that works better than one big dump, and then everyone forgets it two weeks later, right? That that will make a difference. And I don't know how that part's going to play out, but if it does play out. And the way we've seen in other stories where it's, you know, drip, 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 drip of revelations, I think it definitely has legs. Um, also, it will have legs from the standpoint of, like, if it's widespread enough, the NCAA is going to have some really hard decisions in terms of who gets punished, how, why, its own investigations that can only begin after the Fed investigations are over. So there's also a time factor here where it could go over a wide amount of time. Um, so for those two reasons, yeah, I think, I think this could be big. Um, I do think uh, what the powers that be in college sports are like nothing better is to basically use this as an opportunity to say, oh, you see, money is corrupting. We can't give it to mm-hmm. athletes. They'll double down on their message. Um, maybe introduce the NRA. No matter before. what happens, yeah, yeah. they're the NRA. The solution no matter what happens, guns, the answer right? is more of them. Yeah. Yeah, or more guns. Like the solution yes. to guns is more guns. That's it. <laughs> so, and the, the solution, solution yeah, to solution NCAA to corruption is more NCAA enforcement capability. Right. Right. Now, so now what, I do think. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh no no no! I I, I have a I have a connected question. Um, mm-hmm. I don't quite understand, and you could help me out here. Like what justifies the presence of the feds here because and what federal <laughs> laws we're talking about? Because that to me is what makes this different from what we've seen before. Because if we're right. talking feds, I mean, are we talking RICO? I mean, what, what is the justification for the FBI being involved in this? That's a, that's a great question. By the way, before I answer that, I want to say one other thing that I think is different about this time is the reaction to this has been completely different than past NCAA scandals. You've seen, at least for the media, I've seen very little of hand wringing over, oh my God, things are corrupt. We need to crack down. We need to get tougher. We need to put these bad apples in their place. And I've seen article after article after column after column saying the NCAA system is stupid. The NCAA system is what's corrupt. Let these guys be paid. Get rid of this underground economy. I've actually seen people understand what's really happening, which is a huge, huge bit of progress from, say, 10 years ago and definitely from 20 years ago. So I I take heart at that. To get to your other question, why are the feds even involved? That's a tremendously good question. And for a number of reasons. First of all, the amounts of money here are not that big. 
And generally, when the feds get involved in investigating this kind of financial crime or quote-unquote crime, it's for much bigger sums of money. So they're definitely doing this because college sports is high profile, not because it's actually a lot of money that we're talking about here. Yes, secondly, the theory of the case to me is extremely dubious. And this gets to what you were asking. Who's the victim here exactly? If you look at the indictments that have been filed and you listen to what the prosecutors have said publicly, their theory seems to be the schools are the victim here. Don't laugh yet. And that they're the victim because they brought in and recruited and had players playing who weren't actually eligible under the, the school's own amateurism rules that they create. And the schools didn't know that. And so when they get punished by the NCA and they lose scholarships or they have to vacate wins or whatever it is, they're the victims, which I think is kind of crazy. Oh, staggering. But maybe that's just me. You know, they're the ones putting the rules on the athletes saying you can't get paid. And the athletes get paid anyway. Now they're going to the feds claiming they're the victims, right? That's, or the feds are claiming they're the victims. That's a little bit sketchy. I do think there are some applications of the law here that probably aren't as much of a stretch. Like in the case where you've got assistant coaches who are state employees, and it seems like they're offering, you know, what could be called bribes or financial inducements uh, to steer players one way or to one agent or another, stuff like that. I do think there are probably laws against doing that. Like that's not a good thing. Like just like in regular business, you know, you can offer people above the board contracts, signing bonus, fire fees, you get in trouble if you offer them under the table bribes, if you're caught, right? That's also still illegal. Like there are, you could, you could make a case that there's, there's like literal some corruption here with state employees. Um, but it, again, it's such a small time thing. It's curious the feds would be involved in such a big way. Uh, and then the other part of this that I think is very curious in terms of what's the crime here is to me personally, the only real crime is that when this money flows under the table, it's not being reported necessarily to the IRS. People are getting these quote unquote loans or gifts of money and they're not paying gift tax on it. As a taxpayer, as someone who wants public goods, you know, our government needs all the money it can get. And I find that offensive. And I find it very curious that there aren't actually any tax evasion things in the charging document so far. Like where's the IRS in all this? To me, the IRS should care a lot more about this than the FBI does. Mm. Very interesting indeed. So the, it's still a little bit unclear, like where the FBI sees their place in this and why. And I, think I know so. it's also one of those things that makes people uncomfortable. Anytime you have the FBI involve themselves in sports, it's, it, can, it has a tendency to send a shiver. And I, get, I mean, do you think we could be seeing, I'm just asking you for some predictive power mm-hmm. here. Is this the sort of thing where, the, where you have NCAA coaches who might end up in a federal prison? For doing things that they thought were just NCAA business as usual. Yeah, it's kind of stinky, but we're just messing with bylaws and nothing else. Like, is prison in the future for some of these folks? I really doubt that anyone is going to go to prison, federal prison, for any of this. I would be really surprised. Um, I would not be surprised if a couple of these assistant coach, you know, plead out and flip and give more information or have already done that and been on wiretap that we don't know about yet. Um, in terms of in, in terms of sort of getting more information to the feds, um, but I cannot imagine that any basketball coach 
is going to go to jail or prison because he's on a phone somewhere telling some runner, yeah, go ahead and make sure the hundred grand from the shoe company gets to this guy's family or this player's uncle or whatever. Right. Right. Like, I just don't think anyone's going to go to prison. And I think if, if they even try to do that, I think they would actually make their case that I think the feds would be shooting themselves in the foot really hard if they started doing that. I think people would turn on this case even more. Public sentiment would turn on it. And I think they would get like, not only probably lose the cases, but they would get killed in appeal, even if they managed to get some sort of conviction that sent someone to jail. Like, I just don't see that happening. It is not that level of crime whatsoever, um, if it's arguably even a crime. Um, so, I mean, you could ask a lawyer, you could ask someone who's like really familiar with these kinds of statutes, if there's a, if there's a possibility of that, I just really doubt practically that that would happen. Um, I think we're going to look back on this case. A lot like we look back on Balco or a lot of us look back on Balco for those who remember in the two thousands when the oh, feds yeah. were investigating steroid use in Olympic and American, you know, pro sports, Coming um, through Barry Bonds garbage. Exactly. Well, where do we get to once the, the, the revolution of steroid use blew over the congressional hearings, when we got to the aftermath, the actual just sort of legal proceedings. And yes, a few people did go to jail for a little bit of time because using steroids and distributing steroids actually is a federal crime and also lying to the feds is a crime. So if any of these coaches lied to the feds, maybe someone does go to jail to make an example of them for six months, something like that. That's why I think Marion Jones went to jail in Balco. But oh, yeah. on the yeah, Balco point, right? On the Balco point, right? When we look back now, how do most people feel about that? Most if people, even, even people that it. hate, if they remember, and even the people that hate steroids in sports or baseball especially, right? Most people feel like that was a big waste of taxpayer money and time. Mm-hmm. Like, what exactly did we really accomplish? Like, what was the point of getting Marion Jones to perjure herself, essentially lying about cheating in, cheating in sports, right? Lying to the federal investigators about cheating in sports, and then gone to jail. And by the way, I'm not a Marion Jones fan. And I think she, I don't think she was a great person. And like, I didn't really buy her whole redemption arc, but like, I don't think she should have been in jail. Like, what, what do we accomplish as a society by doing that? And we don't have unlimited resources either. So what could have our prosecutors and law enforcement people been doing instead? You have to look at the opportunity cost. And I do think we're going to look back if we're not looking at already and be like, you know, the feds have better things to do than to worry about whether college basketball players getting money at their table, whether Adidas was just, and Nike and whoever else was distributing that money, whether coaches were funneling it, whether some shady agents were involving themselves. I just think they have better things to do. And I think most people are going to look at it and be like, yeah, that's the way I think too. Wow. Patrick, this is deep stuff, man. Um, I just wanted to throw out for myself because some listeners might be wondering – like, and I get some trolls on this too. I just, this is a little mm-hmm. disconnected from what we're talking about, but I've had people say to me like, Hey dude, you know, you sound like freaking Milton Friedman when it comes to the NCAA, you want free market, <laughs> free labor. Right. That ain't you, Dave, what's going on? So let me say this like just very clearly and you could say what you want. I'll say this, read Karl Marx's writings about the civil war in the United States. Free labor over indentured servitude, free labor over cartel systems, free labor over compulsory labor any day of the week and twice on Sunday. There, just said it. Yeah, I, I mean, I think on this issue, like, what I want, what I want is, I mean, I'm glad you said that. Like, what I, what I think people that are active advocates want is just simple. 
for athletes to enjoy the same economic rights and protections the rest of us all take for granted. That's the trick that the NCAA has pulled. They make it seem like, oh, your athletes get so much. You're giving them extra. Do they deserve extra? We all should decide who gets to have what. They're already so privileged. All that BS. And actually, what people who want athletes to have the right to be paid are asking for is for them just to be treated like the rest of us. It's not to get more. It's to actually get the same. That's what people miss about this subject. No one is actually saying athletes should get special stuff. They're saying they should just be treated like the rest of us. And by the way, since they happen to be valuable, yeah, if they're treated like the rest of us economically, they're going to realize more of the profit they're generating. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, even, even in America, there's nothing wrong with that at all. It's a good thing. You know, we're about free markets. We're about well-regulated free markets. And in this case, they're not being allowed to access the well-regulated free market the rest of us get to. Damn. Well, Patrick Ruby, thank you so much for your time. How can people follow you on social media and learn more about what you're writing these days? Uh, you can follow me at Patrick underscore Ruby. That's H as in Henry, R-U-B as in boy, Y, uh, on Twitter. And in terms of what I'm writing, I'm always posting it there. But you can find me at places like NBC Think. You can find me at Deadspin sometimes. You can find me at Washingtonian Magazine uh, and other places to come that I can't talk about yet. But, uh, you know, oh, I'm out there on the freelance hustle. So. Man, if you end up at The Athletic, tell them to publish about women's sports. We're going to talk about that a little bit later in this week's show. Yeah. Okay. If that <laughs> does happen, I'll do If that, that does happen. Um, and, and, and last thing, Patrick, what music are you listening to these days? What, what are you listening to when you're writing or when you're exercising? <laughs> I don't know if you're going to have this, but, um, you, know, you know, I was recently on a nice, I was on a nice vacation in Southeast Asia recently. And Damn. this doesn't even add up or make sense. I got really into bossa nova music. Don't ask wow, me why. Makes it was no just very relaxing. And as a re- I was on a relaxing vacation. The resort I was staying with, they had like a whole big like playlist of stuff like in the rooms. And one night, get back, and there's like Bossa Nova playing, and I got really into it. That's what I'm doing right now. I know it's not what you expected. That's right. Go from the Nima. Damn. Nice job. Um, Well, best to you, best to your family. Nah, man. Yeah, no no kidding. Join join the club on that one. But you know what? A couple years ago, I was going to put on some public enemy, so now I need something more mellow. Yeah, no, I hear you. And then if you say public enemy, people are going to say, who? No, nah, they won't. I'm just kidding. Oh, man, that's even older, honestly. <laughs> no, I know. That's that's when it really hurts, when you throw down with your cool groups and people are like, oh, yeah, I saw them at the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Yeah. That's I think my it, dad had an old CD somewhere in a closet. And the people are like, what's a CD? Ugh. All right, Patrick, <laughs> got to keep my head up, man. Like Chuck D said this to me on the first episode of the revamp podcast that we did. He said, you have to fight gravity and you have to fight being horizontal keep your body moving so i take that close to heart hope to get younger every year and hey man thanks so much for joining us on the podcast always a pleasure thanks for having me
And now, as promised, some choice words about Ali Raceman can't stop, won't stop. So Ali Raceman isn't stopping, and that is great news for anyone who wants the powerful to be held to account or believes that the Me Too movement in sports is just barely beginning. The gold medalist who went public with accusations of abuse against one-time USA Gymnastics and Michigan State doctor Larry Nasser is now suing the United States Olympic Committee for negligence, saying that they provided no oversight or intervention as Nasser assaulted hundreds of athletes under the guise of medical treatment. Raceman wants to know whether the USOC ignored Nasser out of benign neglect or perhaps for more malignant reasons. Warnings about Nasser, let's not forget, were reportedly bandied about for years, although the USOC and USA Gymnastics put their heads in the sand until an expose published by the Indianapolis Star in 2016. Support your local media. The known facts tell us that even if you give the USOC every benefit of the doubt, more people were hurt precisely because they chose silence. Raceman's lawsuit puts it out there in plain and brutal language, saying that the USOC, quote, at the highest levels of its organization, end quote, knew what was happening and looked the other way in order to keep the Olympic trains running on time. As Raceman said in a statement to the media that accompanied the lawsuit, my highest priority has been to push for change so future generations of athletes will be safer. It has become painfully clear that these organizations have no intention of properly addressing this problem. After all this time, the USOC remains unwilling to conduct a full investigation, and without a solid understanding of how this happened, it is delusional to think sufficient changes can be implemented. I refuse to wait any longer for these organizations to do the right thing. It is my hope that the legal process will hold them accountable and enable the change that is so desperately needed. End quote. Now, what makes the timing of Raceman's actions so important is that she made the choice to throw down the lawsuit just days after the post-Winter Olympics resignation of USOC head Scott Blackman. While Blackman's resignation was chalked up to legitimate health reasons, there is no question that his exit was thought by the USOC as another way, along with the mass dismissal of the USA Gymnastics Board, to publicly turn the page on Nasser and display some kind of veneer of good governance. Raceman is making clear that the page cannot be turned until there is accountability, that there cannot be peace in the Olympic Village until there is justice, or this will repeat itself again and again. This is hardly the first time that Raceman has performed the difficult task of linking Nasser's abuse with the bystander complicity of the USOC. At Nasser's sentencing, a seemingly infinite line of survivors spoke to how Nasser's abuse derailed their lives, resulting in Nasser receiving a sentence that, between child pornography and assault convictions, uh, totals 300 years. But Raceman, in part due to her gold medal fame, and in part due to the fact that she was not expected at the trial, sent shockwaves by her presence. Those shockwaves became an earthquake when she stood up, and in addition to calling out Nasser, condemned the absence of the USOC at the sentencing, saying, Why have I and the others here probably not heard anything from the leadership of the USOC? Why has the U.S. Olympic Committee been silent? Why isn't the USOC here right now? With this lawsuit, we can be assured that we won't have to settle for eventual congressional hearings or have to stomach whatever the USOC's, quote, independent investigation delivers. 
Instead, they will be held to account by an athlete whose only goal is forcing them to actually assess how they allowed an abuser access to their athletes and then chose to do nothing. We'll be back, but first, a quick word from The Nation magazine. Look, we need alternative media right now. We need to get news out into people's hands. The Nation magazine has been doing it for 150 years, and we ain't stopping. Can't stop, won't stop. Support The Nation magazine. It is more needed than ever. Read my stuff. Read John Nichols. Read Collier Meyerson. I mean, we're talking some amazing, amazing writers doing the best work on the political left. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. That's thenation.com slash Slash subscribe. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. Just Stand Up Award stand up. goes to Minnesota Lynx coach Cheryl Reeve, who put out a tremendous tweet throwing shade at The Athletic, which is kind of like the, the new pay sports site that everybody's talking about. They've gobbled up some incredible journalists. They do terrific coverage. Their slogan is uh, fall in love with the sports page again. It's a fascinating model uh, for how to get paid in this journalistic climate. But Cheryl Reeve, the coach of the Lynx, makes a good point. She says, things that make you go, hmm, why would a subscriber-based sports medium that claims full access to all sports limit its earnings potential by not covering women's sports? The Athletic does just that and it's bad business. Hashtag tired of the bias. Thank you, Cheryl Reeve. If you're going to be a sports site, then you need to cover women's sports. Otherwise, you are chopping yourself off financially in in addition to the fact that it's sexist and immoral. But on the financial side, what The Athletic is trying to do right now is show the world how we can financially sustain top-quality sports journalism. That's its mission, and frankly, it's a laudable mission, given how confused the current media climate is. But for them to have that as their mission and not cover women's sports, man, it's like hobbling yourself before you even get out of the starting gate, and it's a damn shame, and hopefully they'll correct that. And I think the voices of people like Cheryl Reeve are the voices that push for that kind of necessary change. In Women's History Month, no less. The Sit Your Ass Down Award. Sit your ass down. And this entire one is courtesy of the reporting of Lindsey Gibbs from Think Progress, who did a terrific job on this, former guest of the show. Sit Your Ass Down goes to Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa, who actually, as Lindsey pointed out, directed his constituents to express outrage at a women's basketball player for not standing during the national anthem. She's a Wisconsin player, not an Iowa player. But heaven forfend, she did not stand during a road game against Iowa. So here's a senator of the United States, someone who's 198 years old, directing his constituents to go after this person on social media. Her name is Marsha Howard. And really, really think of this as a second Just Stand Up Award because Lindsay was able to interview Marsha Howard. And I want to read to you what Marsha Howard said about why she was not standing for the anthem. Check this out. She said, I have not only been protesting the brutal acts of gun violence, but also the improper attainment of justice and liberty for all, and the understated emphasis on racialization and inequality of people of color. Systemic racism is important to me because it affects me, my family, my culture, and the systematic oppression we have endured. 
Facts prove the systematic oppression and the fight to keep people of color in the back with their mouths shut. It's not shut up and dribble, bam, that phrase is becoming iconic, when we're out doing for the community. Whenever we stand up or speak on topics that relate to us about racial disparities, though, it's always shut up and dribble. And the last thing that she said, this other quote that I just have to read to you, again, props to Lindsay Gibbs at Think Progress for getting these quotes. This is what Marsha Howard said. What inspired this protest was having a platform that I can use to speak for myself and others who aren't given the same opportunity, the voiceless Americans. Bam. This is a college student who gets what these protests are all about in a way that U.S. senators do not. And don't think that's by accident. We'll be right back, but first, a very important quick word for Edge of Sports listeners. Yo, we are starting a Patreon page. All you got to do is go to www.patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod, where you can become someone who helps keep this podcast going. We've got different categories by which you can give to help us keep on doing the work that we're doing. Look, I never thought I would need a Patreon page, but the fact of the matter is this. That intersection of sports and politics has just exploded in the last year, and we want to do more. We want to take the show on the road. We want to make more merch. We want to do more stuff. And to do that, we need your help. And depending on how much you give, uh, we're going to be giving something back. I mean, whether it is a signed book I've written, whether it is a bi-monthly mailbag, whether it is a t-shirt, all of these things are available, and we're doing it because we want to support the continuance of this podcast. Look, this podcast will always be free. You don't got to give anything, but if you appreciate the content we give, please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. And now, back to the podcast. And now, before I wrap up the show, and I've got some special thank yous, and you're going to want to listen to that, I have a question for everybody out there, and I'm hoping people could call in with their answers. Are you going to watch the NCAA tournament this year? Why or why not? Are you going to watch March Madness, given the cascade of scandals that are going on? Well, you're not going to watch it anyway, given the fact that these scandals are nothing new, even if this is the most heightened example of what we've seen. Give us a call at 401-426-3343. That's 401-426-EDGE. Let us know what you think. We would love to play some of your answers on the air. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening to this week's show. Before I give any credits or anything of the sort, I want to give a shout-out to our patrons that have given $5 or more in the last cycle. Really do appreciate all of you. These are the people who wanted their names said over the air, and I'm more than happy to do it. And if anybody else wants to help, just go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. So thank you, Allison Eady. Thank you, Aaron Maiden. Thank you, Dylan Goings. Thank you, Parashar Bise. Thank you, Lena. Thank you, Gary Nelson. Thank you, Cindy Shambin. Thank you, Eric Geist. Thank you, Stephen Wobble. Thank you, Tal Levy. Thank you, Carly Anderson. Thank you, Lucy Anderson. Thank you, Darice Clark. Thank you, Bruce Anton. Thank you, Deepak Batal. And now a special thank you because it's a happy birthday thank you to Morgan Wallace, who teaches sports and society at a high school, and he got some of his students to tweet me. So happy birthday, Morgan Wallace. Uh, Kelly is pretty awesome that she sees this as a birthday present, at least from my perspective. But we really appreciate you and every listener uh, who we just mentioned. So happy birthday, Morgan, and your students tweeted me some really good stuff. So thank you so much.
Also, hey, now that we're wrapping up the show, thanks to my producer, David Tigaboo. Thank you to everybody out there listening. Thank you to The Nation magazine. If you want to listen to back episodes of the show, just go to edgeofsportspodcast.com. If you want to leave comments, leave a rating at iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. All of that makes actually a huge difference in terms of how they promote the show. For everybody out there listening, stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C.